Good afternoon. Welcome to the third and final day of uh, the living room, the forum for 154 New York. Um, the first uh, session is a, is a solo presentation, which is not describable, at least not to me, because I don't know what's going to happen exactly. It has been kept secret. So I will just introduce its author. Uh, Emmanuel Iduma is a writer of fiction and of nonfiction, born and raised in Nigeria. Uh, he's published essays and stories in different journals and magazines. He uh, lives in New York now, where he teaches at the School of Visual Arts. And he is also the editor of Saraba magazine, which he co-founded. He, uh, he works in close association with the visual arts. And in last year, he was associate curator of the Nigerian Pavilion at the Venice Biennial. Uh, he has a book coming out in October um, uh, with Cassava Republic Press. It's titled A Stranger's Prose, and it's a travelogue combining narrative and criticism. And I believe this is one of the main things I know uh, is that this uh, experimental presentation that we will see and hear has to do with the notion of travelogue with interacting with images and with memories of travel, as well as histories of Nigerian politics. And with that in mind, Emmanuel, welcome. Awake or in a dream? Faces and images and gestures from my travels return to me in great detail. Sometimes it is the wind spluttering against the car, the window of the car I'm in, or an underfed dog rummaging through rubbish for a glint and bone, or a boat unmanned in the middle of a river seen from afar. I began to exchange emails with a relative who requested anonymity. My first email was a list of all the towns I had slept in during my travels, at least for a night. Towns in which I turned in my sleep and share of where I was, whether I was battered in sweat or in tears, or if I lay beside a lover or a travel companion. I hoped, I wrote, that the cities appeared unthetered to their countries, an atlas of a borderless world. In the first response I received, I was urged to recount stories of strange sightings, emotions, and encounters, remembered or imagined. Take me with you on your journeys, my relative replied. Let me go in your place. On impulse, before anything else, in a white E350 Ford van, I drive into Mauritania at sunset. I see a dune land, and then houses built as if to imitate matchboxes. Today, the Eid begins. Men are walking back from mosque, women and children trailing them, sheer-footed and celebratory. I see all this with my nose pressed to the window. The men wear long, loose-fitting garments, mostly white, sometimes light blue. I watch them from behind and think of the word swashbuckle. I am moved by these swaggering bodies, dressed in their finest, walking to houses that look only seven feet high. I envy the other in their gates, a lack of hurry, as if by walking they possess a piece of the earth. 
I want to be this man. The cost of my travels, if I made a tentative sum, included a precarious love affair in Lagos. I gathered memorabilia in each new city as if they were placatory bricks to bridge the distance, paid passage from her to me. Those potential keepsakes had the feel of poems written on the spur of sentiment for immediate effect. Petals of a sunflower carved on a wooden brush, a key ring with a depiction of a local marble, baking instructions behind a postcard. On two other postcards covered in doodles, I wrote the following. I practice what kinds of shapes I will make on your body. Clusters of circles on the back of your wrist, repeated triangles around your navel, spheres with my lips on the corners of your face, then your mouth, a rhombus around a scar on your left arm, numerous inch-wide rectangles from your knee to your hip, squares with curved edges along your torso. For the sake of this exercise, I have bought a sketchbook. When will I see you again? I have made my days into dispatches and unsent letters. I sleep little, I switch beds, and night after night, hope is gathered in sacks of the unknown. When night covered me in a prayer blanket, I interceded for our recumbent figures and watched the interminable horizon of lost love. I know you twice. First as Azor, distant beauty. Second as Marigold, glistening body. They say, those who leave die slowly. I say, I, I dream much morning. I dream you leaving. On my way to Sintian in southeastern Senegal, a man rode a donkey up a pedestrian bridge just out of Dakar. Sheep clustered behind a hillocks van at the point of Poyage. While the policeman inspected a bus at an intersection, the, its back doors remained closed. But once he motioned it forward, the door opened suddenly, revealing passengers sandwiched and hushed. A dog, a boy, and a man. The man flagged down a car and entered. The sullen dog looked at him, wagging its tail. The car pulled away. At once the dog turned, and then the boy headed home. Two chatting girls near Fatigue wore sleeveless jerseys, returning from netball practice. One held a ball under her armpit, both drank from brown plastic cups. They, they walked like giantesses. A little girl wearing a red blouse carried a baguette. The baguette was wrapped in a white shroud-like cloth and seemed as long as her torso, even extending beyond her neck. A man took a black ox for a walk beside farmland, rope tied to his leg. A pregnant woman in blue vest waited at the edge of the road and smiled at a passing car. A young woman sat behind a motorcycle, holding a cockerel and a broom between her laps, wearing fluttering black scarf and blue jeans. Mounds of unrefined salt in a region filled with salt lakes. Two women exited the highway on wheelchairs. The woman in front needed no assistance. The woman behind was steered behind by a little boy. What makes me miss you so much? I admit it is in part the distance between your body and mine. Each body I saw on the road was mounting evidence that yours was far away. All these weeks I will be alone and desolate in Sintian. 
I will be seen as a stranger who comes to go. That does not devastate me as much as the fear that you love me no more. The women outside my room speak Pula, but it is your voice I hear. Come back to me. In Sintian, I spend a considerable amount of time observing trees. They are dense in the distance, pass as I approach. Only when I am close enough do I notice their singularities. And yet, because I do not recognize any of them, they remain anonymous to me. Trees are often named according to the places they frequently appear. A Kentucky coffee tree is a tree of Central and Eastern North America. A Brazilian pepper tree is to be found in Brazil. A Chinese scholar tree is the seed was and found in China and Japan, etc. It must be then that the etymology of a tree is linked to the space it occupies. In this way, it possesses ancestry. Some trees will last a century, others will last five, but none will go down without a name. They are not named with words as they are named with character. They allow a place to be given identity. For example, people in Sintian often say, let's meet under the neem tree, the shade there. In the city where you and I live, there were hardly any trees to serve as metaphor. Only now I am aware do I realize that for you I must become a tree. Every tree is the opposite of wandering. I do remember growing up and not feeling like I need to learn this language so I could become, like it didn't make me original. I didn't need to be authentic. You know, there's always this, you know, because Nigeria is very eccentric minded, you know, there's always this question of being an original, authentic, I mean, real Yoruba man, I mean, real Yoruba person. And I, <laughs> I always, <laughs> I. For days, depending on the availability of Mamadou, I had no guide in Dakar. It amuses me, now that I remember, how I walked in Pon'ar, nervous of what world was possible without English words. My French and Wolof constituted no more than a sentence when combined. Once, overlooking the sea in Ungor, my eyes followed the paths the surfers made as they performed their stunts. I see what rivers, the Nile in a stretch beyond the Mediterranean, the Niger as it joins Timbuktu to Lokoja, teach with their flowing mass. Wave falls on wave as one dialect inflects on another. All rivers are multilingual. I was nothing without the translators to whom my questions were entrusted, whether in Bamako, Abidjan, or Casablanca. But alone, as was often the case, I wondered how to survive without them. On the night I arrive in Benin City, I sit in a taxi. I am calmed by the driver's chattiness. He describes the city's quarters as we drive along. <clears throat> we are headed towards the GRA and we drive past the hotel. It is lit with a floodlight, famous at night for men looking for sex. In front of the hotel, there are taxis waiting. <clears throat> Even with a brief glance at the taxi drivers who loiter to pick other men, 
I see that each is prepared for a long stay into the night. Perhaps they arrived early to claim spots, or tempted by what their eyes imagine their pockets can afford, they'll make an offer to one of the women. I do not see any woman waiting to be picked. It might be too early for this. It is only 8 p.m. How interesting, I think, later that there are men around the hotel for whom, like sex workers, this isn't merely a question of pleasure. For both, the body is put to tireless work. I asked the taxi driver for his number. Responding to impulse, I, I want him to take me around the city at daylight. He has lived all his life in Benin. Men like him carry routes within themselves, as though with each shortcut he takes, he sketches a less officious map of the city. I want to assimilate, in the shortest time possible, the knowledge of all the routes he favors, the city mapped by his hand. He recites his number to me, confront, confirming he could drive me at daylight. But the next day, and the day after that, I forget to call him. <laughs> um, this is my so my my you know my trajectory is not very uncommon in Nigeria. Um, I consider a photograph in which, as a boy, I pose with my siblings, wearing white agbada. Each face expresses an individual sadness. We are all perturbed by the imminent departure of our father, who must return to the United States to complete his graduate studies. The Agbada I wore then is similar to, and as white as, what I wear in the portraits taken during my time in Mauritania six months ago. And my pose, which is what makes me return to this photograph in the first place, seems to have prefigured one of my poses in those Mauritania portraits. What makes me linger? while looking at the earlier photograph, is the possibility that my body might have forgotten, might have remembered a forgotten gesture. Standing for the shot in Nauk shots, how could I have known, could I have known that the resulting picture would become analogous to one taken in southeastern Nigeria more than two decades earlier? I place my Mauritanian portraits against events of my childhood. Even upon my father's return from the United States, I moved from one Nigerian city to another, spending an average of four years in each city. I understand that my pose as a boy and as a young man depicts the fraught moments I have carried within myself all these years. The tenseness of belonging in parts, of being certain of departure, and the firmness with which my hands are held together is an attempt to hold myself in place, to be steadied. This attempt at studying is the lot of those who are one day in a place, the next day elsewhere. They are the innumerable wayfarers of this world, migrants of great number. So which other place apart from Nigeria you don't go? And Mali? Only Nigeria? No, no, You don't? Where, where other place you don't visit? You don't Me? go any other country? Yes, I'm going Cameroon. I'm going Gabon. I met one, one years and six months from Cameroon. 
from Gabon. I met two two months. I just come back. I come back to Nigeria again. Met no, I not met three weeks. I come back from. So now here, now here be your village. Be your, yes, yeah. here. Now from here, my mommy brought me and my papa. Everybody there here for me. On my second evening in Khartoum, we are served a welcome dinner of falafel, a tray full of bean stew and a pile of pita bread. I observed the woman who spoke the most. Her eagerness seemed like a sprint ahead of the moment. Each person's response to a question was one-fifth of hers. And when, in an unforeseen twist of the conversation, she was asked which of the men she thought was the best looking, she pointed at me. She was gorgeous. I noticed, despite her spiritedness, that at the moment she fell silent, the corner of her mouth would twitch as if she pondered what to leave unsaid. I gathered hearsay tales about her from, my friend, from her friends. The daughter of rich parents, she had returned from studying in Malaysia a few months prior. She was betrothed, they said, but hesitant about marriage. Although curious about how far I could take my interest in her, I felt damned by time. There weren't more than two days left. They said she was high on hashish the first night I met her. This seemed plausible. Her courage the next time I saw her, contrasting her outrageous chattiness, seemed forlorn. A day to my departure, she bought a new camera, a Nikon for entry-level photographers. She brought this as we walked in the Omdurman market, in a rare moment when we were unaccompanied by my travel companions. She began to take photographs of me framed by wares and stalls and faces in meat chatter. These are portraits, she joked, of the moment I imagine you're Sudanese. If you write me, I'll send them to you. Once also, on the road that leads to the center of Naukshot, while I attempt to cross over, the, over to the sidewalk, a group of young men in a car stop beside me. The Arabic is animated, and noticing my glare of miscomprehension, one points to my camera. I understand their request. I look above them. I see the portrait of the current president looming overhead. To have their picture taken, they would have to stand with their backs to the billboard. For a moment, I entertain the thoughts that they are asking for, for a photograph to demonstrate allegiance to the president. Once the photograph is taken, they return to their car. I cannot remember if afterward they asked for the photograph to be sent to them through Facebook, but they don't ask to see what it looks like on the digital camera. Why so? Why did it matter to them that a stranger in a moment of fleeting encounter took their photograph? At the moment of posing, they make themselves into the people they want to be. They ask to be photographed as if, through a camera and a willing photographer, they can represent themselves as the sea fits. And in being photographed, in the creation of a document of their pose, they affirm their place in the city. Left with photographs I had no need for, except perhaps to serve as a reminder of their confidence. They indicate how, were I less restless, I might claim a place. Their fathers and grandfathers before them, as they settled 
pushed the black Africans of the region farther and farther south towards the Senegal River. In the process, tens of thousands of African men, women, and children were captured and taken into slavery in encampments farther north. The enslavement of their progenies continued. For the first time in my walk, I am at ease, less concerned about the confrontation of any human presence. I see a fenced cemetery with a broken gate. A small thoroughfare separates the cemetery from where I stand. I cross the narrow strip of road and begin to climb sand dunes as high as my ankles. Near the gravestones, the sand disintegrates under my feet as if each step is false. It becomes a solemn time, a moment of lingering unease. I feel apathetic to the camera I carry. A person who is photographed in a graveyard, I imagine, in a place where the mourned reside, also becomes an object of mourning. In the cemetery, there are two men who look at me, but also at the camera with undisguised suspicion. I wave at them, declare peace in Arabic, assalamu alaikum and they appear to accept this as a guarantee of my good intention. The men, it seems, are fixing a scarecrow to one of the graves. I watch them from the corner of my eyes, seeing the insensate figure from the peripheral vantage. I notice its hands are raised above its head. Why would grieving men install a doll on the overhanging part of a grave? My first guess is of the tutelary nature of the scarecrow. In some way or another, one can be protected from evil spirits lounging in cemeteries by portraying them. But I also recall Khnum, the Egyptian god of creation. With his rotating wheel like a potter's, he, fashion human, he fashions human beings. Each person comes in two corresponding forms. The other disembodied form is known as Ka. When a person dies, the Ka does not go with him but to the graveyard to leave with his mummy or funeral or statue. The family members bring it food for its sustenance to ensure its continued survival. In its eternal life rests the assurance of resurrection and immortality for its master. When the men leave, I decide against taking a photograph. I perceive a camera desecrates what must remain unpicturable in a graveyard. There is a little boy in Yvonne O'War's dust who has grown up close to water. He is on a boat in the middle of a lake. He sees neither east nor west, only water. He has never learned how it is possible to see pathways on a sheet of water. How do you know where to go? He asks the boatman with whom he travels. You carried away, the boatman replies. How can I find it? He asks again. Ask your eyes to show you where to look. Ask my eyes, how? The boatman laughs and then says, that question reveals your dense blindness. But later, once the boy had been rowed ashore, the boatman tells him how. Go to the beginning. Every lake holds the memory of its mother. It is to her it strives to return, imagining roads that we follow home. One day at dinner, 
While Mantia Diawara was making One World in Relation, his film on Edward Glisson, the filmmaker turned to the philosopher and asked, how can I simplify your ideas for a wider audience? Glisson looked at him and smiled. If I were you, I would wait until we were in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, then point the camera at the mass of water, its abyssal expanse, and that would be the film, the whole film, in one shot. The ocean is the world, without partition and division, only depth and expanse. Because of its depth, it, it serves as a burial place. So if you point the camera at a mass of water, you get an opaque representation of gods and languages and objects and song, and songs, everything thrown in with bodies from the West African coast. The opacity of the sea is therefore its rich, dangerous promise. Some will drown and some will reach harbor. That was a breaking transmission. Colonel, your main job, I realize, is winning this war. I wonder if you, if you know how concerned people outside Nigeria really are, including people in Britain, at the dangers of mass starvation. I must tell you one thing, that Europe doesn't understand Africa one bit. Not even at the moment, not even the ex-colonial masters. Look, whatever, whenever you want to start a new project, you must have feasibility plans. Feasibility plan, in as far as this particular aspect is concerned, is to find out whether we have got enough food in Nigeria or not. We have got enough food. It is not the milk that you send from Britain or the sugar or any other thing that you send from Britain that can sustain us. We are almost that sufficient in as far as certain items are concerned. Enough food is within the rebel-held area at the moment. It's not what, a distribution the only problem. Thing, the only problem which the rebels can be accused of now is this question of distribution. They are not doing it properly. It's limited to a very small circle. And that small circle is enjoying itself so much. Now, you just look at some other people. You go to Gabon and see the other people who are coming up from the rebel hills, who are civil servants. Their f chicks are very fat. 
they are not malnutrited at all. Now, the whole world is just coming on this question of humanitarian business, God knows, Chokocho and all this, and who are the people who actually being malnutrited at the moment? They are not Ibus, they are the ethics, they are the Ibibius, they are the rivers. The houses, there are some houses even there, there's some Europe has been held there. This question of uh, food or no food is just cockeyed, it's just a sort of cover plan. If anybody thinks that they can just hold back the hand of the will by the beginning of next month, they are making a damn mistake. They better begin to think twice. This country is independent and we are going to retain it that way, humanitarian reasons or not. I can recite distances by hearts, feet, memory. I can tell wanderlust, rounded as the eyes. A walking eye sees itself blind. A roving leg crumbles into a pause. The only thing a man needs is a suitcase and a soul. To the Ivorian man in downtown Tangier who exclaimed, the sea is the only way I write. I recall when you wrote your name in my notebook. I have undertaken several comings and goings, and alas, my search for the page with your handwriting remains futile. Regardless, I persist in remembering how some letters appeared, uncluttered, standalone, singular in their possible meanings. Oh, for an oval pebble gliding over waves, thrown by an enraptured child. E for an un unhooked prison gate door. R for the silhouette of an unaccompanied woman who for the moment reclines on a lamppost standing in wait. R again for a man who reclines on a wall in the Medina, waiting to be hired, unsure of lunch, unsure of tonight's blanket. For yesterday while he slept in the open street, drunken teenagers pulled off the blanket and fled, screaming, Negro, Negro. M for two interlinked figures lying on their backs, looking at the night sky. H for two friends who cling to a fence, one holding to the other's arm in despair, both exhausted from being hit by buttons. H again for beams that anchor the lower deck of a rescue ship, where one unmoving body lies, foaming in the mouth. P for the curve of a child's head, held aloft by despairing passengers as signal to the rescuers. U for the arms of a man who reaches downwards from a wooden vessel, to grab a child, raised by men wearing live vests in a deep gray sea. Oh, again for the circumference of a crowded boat, where amongst other things, faces rinsed with water from the sea, hands clutched in nervousness, eyes glancing sidelong at the photographer. I see your face managing a smile. I tried. Trust me, I tried. But to tell you of all the photographs from the sea I consult, in search of your face, what remains of it in my mind? The English alphabet seems gabbled. So here's a dirge. If I could sing. So how you take travel from here reach Nigeria? How you, how are, how you go from here reach Nigeria? Me? Yeah. Ah, I will follow motor. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. In Kidira, as I approached the border station a hundred paces away, I stopped to catch the words of a man standing by himself, reclining on an electric pole. The street was busy. 
idlers mingling with passengers, hooting cars synchronous with bleating goats. The man's head was inclined downwards and his voice was subdued as a whisper, but I'd been walking so close I'd heard him. He said, today and tomorrow, God's time is the best. His backpack, similar to mine, looked emptier and ragged. I stood beside him. For a minute or more, he didn't look up. When he did, he smiled. And when I smiled in return, I got the sense that there was potential for conversation, a story. I told him I would like him to read a book. I can't read well, he said. Then I'll read some of it to you. It was mid-afternoon and hot as hell. This is not a cliche. People say Kidira and the neighboring Kays are the hottest towns in Africa, set in, bowl surrounded, set in a bowl surrounded by hills full of iron-bearing rock. Then we sat under a mimosa tree. The words I'd heard him repeat were the same often used in the book. I wasted no time. It seemed timely that a man standing on the roadside agreed to read a book I carried around. The uncanny comes unrehearsed. I was making this trip because I chose to write a book about the Senegal River and its tributaries and the lives of the people who lived along its banks. I wasn't caught in a better life in Europe. His ragged backpack told the opposite. His travels were an imperative harsher than a choice. I had read only the epigraph before he stopped me. Even a life full of holes a life of nothing but waiting is better than no life at all. In the length of time, his eyes remained closed. I thought he had fallen into a trance. But soon, his face was folded in a frown. He spoke with his eyes shut. I have been traveling for a long time, going and coming many times. I have gotten as far as Tangier, then sent back, then got there again, then sent back again. See this paper I have, I got it there. It was two-sided, crumpled, and time-worn, advertising an exhibition of photographs. Two children in the picture were playing in front of an advert, advert box in a port's transit area in Tangier. The ship in the picture was luminous with fluorescent lights, harbored on a blue sea, or approaching anchorage, calm as a stone. Why Nigeria? Why you go Nigeria? Why I go to Nigeria? Uh -huh. Because uh, I'm here. Ah, why? I'm here, man. Nigeria is uh, one country where man feels speaking English. If he enough, if he enough go school, mm. because even if roads, you can speak English. You hear him. You hear him anytime. You hear him. Eh? You must speak English. Mm -hmm. huh? So now, so you come here. You, uh, he asked me say. Petrode, Sino Petrode. But as a member say Nigeria, they call him say <laughs> petrol. For here, if you take, if you talk say petrol, you call him kerosene. Ah, okay. you, see, you call him essence from here. I am in Kidira waiting. My friend was arrested. We are standing in front of a train. I told him this must be part of the Dakar-Niger line. I took the photograph with my phone. Two policemen approached us. They asked for identifying papers. I brought out my passport. 
My friend had none. When he was being taken away, he smiled at me. But his face contracted into many furrows, and he held open his palms like a supplicant. I watched him retreating, half expecting he would turn to look at me. He didn't. Now it was clear that our relationship was not one among equals. I have waited for his reappearance. I have dream, dreamed of him reclining on an electric pole reciting a chant, today and tomorrow, God's time is the best. Today and tomorrow, God's time is the best. I have searched for him. I have been warned by policemen against circling the border station, peeking through cobwebbed shutters. Yet without his name, I am told I cannot be given any information. In the dozens of hours we spent together, I didn't ask for his name. I didn't ask for mine. I have known many shames, but none like the afternoon of my friend's arrest. I recount this encounter to transfer some of that shame. You know, you know, listen, yeah, this song is gonna be tight, you're gonna see that I'm right, all my haters in frights, cause they know my future's bright, song is gonna be tight, you're gonna see that I'm right, all my haters in frights, cause they know my future's bright, Ace, I'm grinding every day like your primolas, you don't say where we they see the stars, no binoculars, we need to walk hard, shine bright, stay real, have skill, ha, we make the cross like the scissors, yeah, my lyrics tight like your skinny jeans, hope you feel me, they like an empty yeah, I hope you feel me. Cause like mantis with a pray, Lord, show us the way. To my brother, they all that I say. Show us the way. Cause we they pray with this. Lajam returned from his travels. First West and North Africa, then South and West Europe. There was a world prior to my journeys, then a world after. He told me this. The people I have seen. The people whose stories I cannot forget, he said. The people who will die trying to cross over. The young boys encamped behind the hill, possible in Ceuta, waiting for the right time to make a run for the fence, day after day, waiting, for some, year after year. Being driven to the border, Lejam asked the driver to stop close to the foot of the hill. About 25 boys encircled him. Their number rising like water, finding level. There are portraits of all the boys. There is also a list with their names, ages, and countries of origin. None of these documents have been shown to the public. But here is a possible list with gaps. In place of all the present and future boys of that Ceuta encampment. One. Two. Three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three. 24, 25. <laughs> ok, donc on va essayer ça. Là où je suis né, les tombes cachées des rebelles, des corps en centaines versés dans des fosses de vraies poubelles.
Au cœur lassé des vieillards, scellait une éternelle haine qu'il transmettait sans peine aux adultes et aux gaillards. L'âme pourtant fragile des femmes, blessée par la lame de ces milieux de morts, ne trouvait désormais à la guerre de tort. Souvent dans les cours, les petits, comme s'ils approuvaient aussi que le sang coulant en mer jouait alors à la guerre. On s'était donné de petits noms choquants, ce qui était piquant, à battre l'autre, à le tuer. La rue des fois se tordait de rire, quand parfois on simulait entre nous un sourire. Tous nous savions nos tribalènes, même comme personne, ne, même comme nous ne voulions en finir avec cette gihène. Là où je suis né, tous nous attendions la guerre pour enfin nous venger du meurtre d'un être cher. What will you do if, if the Federals do come any closer? Well, we probably move out of where we are just at the moment and try to find uh, security a little bit further in the bush. You'll leave the camp altogether? Well, we would have to because the children naturally will try to get shelter in the bush somewhere themselves, you see. So no point of our remaining. It worries you, it must worry you, that every day the Federals are getting closer. Yes, it, it, it does worry us a lot when we hear the noise of shelling in the distance coming closer and closer and closer. How will you survive in the bush? Oh, well, we take a little pack with us if we can. And I think we'd last out for a few days, yeah, you know. Yeah. We, we have our little packs ready. Very we take some cold water with us and... Um, Is there any question of you leaving Biafra for your own safety or... Or no. any other reason? None whatsoever. Unless we are told by those in authority to leave, then we will leave. But of ourselves, we'd never dream of leaving the people. We'd stay with them to the bitter end. In the moving bus in Addis Ababa, there was a man with a hood over his head. He was sitting by the window. I noticed him look at his reflection, and then he smiled. Every inch of his mouth seemed to show how deliberate the smile was and how purposeful. I was curious. Had nostalgic happiness erupted, as is sometimes the case, from the past? Then I saw another boss speeding past beside ours, which I perceived the man was also watching. I could now guess another reason for his smile. Someone sitting by the window of the parallel boss, someone he loved, with whom he exchanged the conversational glance. Yet the improbability of this wasn't lost on me. When I turned away, I noticed my own reflection. My lips were pursed. The expression on my face could have been mistaken for an unhappy one, or the demeanor of a man who wasn't considering a smile. Again, I sought the hooded man's face, by now he was looking towards me. I could claim that at the moment our eyes met, the look on his face became similar to mine. But faces aren't mirrors. Suppose we look long enough at others to discover their secret impulses. Could we understand ours in the process? In Yanya, a sob of a a suburb of Abuja, where my brother and I often visited friends of our family. In the weeks between one school term and the other, you rose before sunup 
to defecate in a rubbish dump beside a popular byroad. Not always, but on protracted, protracted periods when the soccerway was clogged, we used this method. Sometimes the abandoned toilets still served its purpose. Instead of sitting on the bowl, you placed a plastic bag on the floor and stooped above it, then carried your waste in the cover of darkness and flung it into a sea of decay. Several years earlier, again in Nyanya, when my family still lived in Abuja, armed robbers visited us. My mother alleged, later alleged that they must have observed us for some time. It was an insider's job. I remember vaguely, but the man guarding the gates fell into deep slumber. On the nights that came, it rained. Hours earlier, my parents had returned with a stash of cash for a scheduled surgery. It is you we want, madame, they told my mother, and asked her to sit to point out where the money was hidden. No one was hot except my father. They struck his face when he knelt, perhaps sleep-eyed, to pray. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. His blood-eyed face was to our satisfaction avenged. Days after their visit, my mother was invited by the police to identify the robbers. She recognized one of the men's legs, but declined to point him out. Who knows, she thought, he might be released and come back for me. Only that he wouldn't. That afternoon, the police killed all the robbers they arrested. I believe many people in Europe are getting this idea of ceasefire wrong. We on this side, at least, were honorable enough to observe it. But are the rebels actually observing it? Uh, I will tell you one thing, that for the past 24 hours, the rebels have actually intensified their attacks on all fronts. And the sponsor, those who actually, like Britain, that has come out to say they're requesting for the ceasefire, I don't think actually that they understand what the rebels are or even their ideas or their mood of thinking. If they do, they should have appealed also to the rebels to do it. And it's just Cockhead really running from post to pillar asking us to have a ceasefire. Experience has actually taught us that it's just nonsense. But I blame no other nation for this nonsense but Britain. Now, when we had this Addis Ababa um, conference, the peace talk, the rebels agreed that they were going to have a ceasefire. But how far did they observe it? The attack on that particular day, throughout the period of the conference, was rather very heavy. Now, what they are trying to do now is just to have time to re-equip, regroup, rearm, and be properly refitted so that they can continue the war during the Easter. Now, they will never again have that time. They will never be given that opportunity. It's just gone and gone forever. Someone I know, born to devout Christian parents, came into this world a triplet. In their twelfth year, both of her brothers died and her parents were thrown into mourning. Except in the first year of their children's lives, the bereaved couple had allowed only a few photographs of the triplets sitting together. Their Christian convictions had restrained them from taking more. By making photographs, they acquiesced to the demonic traditional Yoruba belief that twins share the same entwined soul. This was unbiblical, they said, for each of us would be judged by God separate from our kin. Yet upon the death of their sons, and since during mourning we cast about our mind for meaning, they became obsessed with having a photograph of their grown triplets, a permanent keepsake of an entwined existence. The only way they could do this was to reinvent. Through photography, the Yoruba believed that when a twin died, 
an artisan had to be commissioned to carve a small effigy as a symbolic substitute for the soul of the deceased twin, or two small effigies if both twins died, so that the immortal soul of the departed will be hosted by the graven image, and the dead will remain as powerful as the living. And so her parents commissioned the photographer to take a picture of the girl, first dressed as herself, and then dressed as the, her brothers. The photograph of the girl dressed as one of her brothers was then printed twice and placed on either side of the girl's image. The resulting picture showed the triplets sitting together. Now an octogenarian, she recounts this to me, showing me the picture. Her eyes are fighting tears. There are those who believe that cameras carry ghosts within them and that ghosts come into view when a photograph is made. I remember an incident confirming this. As the story goes in the famished road, a photographer was taking pictures of a large group and then portraits of certain individuals within the group. An odd explosion followed the camera's flash. Stunned ghosts emerged from the light and melted at the photographer's feet. For each picture the photographer took, five in all, the ghost kept falling at his feet, still dazed by the flash. Fascinated by the camera, they climbed on him and clung to his arms and stood on his head. The photographer, who happened to be drunk, wasn't bothered to return to the studio, so he hung the camera on a nail in the house. The spirits encircled the camera. They kept pointing at it, talking in amazed voices. Were these ghosts who came into view as a result of the camera's flash, the unseen replicas of the photographed individuals? Professor Sadiq Suleiman Wali was General Abacha's personal doctor. He considered himself politically neutral and lived outside the sprawling, heavily guarded presidential complex known as Asso Rock in the capital Abuja. But he was a fixture in the presidential entourage. He's a quiet person, calm person. He can be very firm on some issues, but normally he doesn't talk much. Just around 6 a.m., I had a phone call from Major Mustafa, that's his chief security officer, and just said, please come, come to the villa, come urgently, that's all. Before I could even get ready, a car came, and picked me. But I had no idea what it was all about. I arrived, then I saw the chief security officer, and he said, doctor, doctor, come in, please come in. So I arrived, and then I just saw the president. There was another doctor who came earlier, resuscitating him. Resuscitating him? Yes. Where? In, in his bedroom? I'm not, not inside his bedroom, no. He was in, in the sitting room, actually. And he was on the floor, was he? Or on the couch, or where was he? He was on a couch. He was on a couch. And and was the president? Was he in in his pajamas? Was he for, or was he in his normal work clothes? Yes, he was in normal work clothes. It must have been a dreadful scene. Were were you were you yourself panicked? I didn't panic. I've seen a lot of such problems before in my practice, but uh, to affect him was very tough. Yes, very tough, definitely. I still try to take some samples of blood and urine and, uh, and hair and things like that, uh, just in case for the future. 
from some chemical tests, etc. Are you satisfied that he died of natural causes yourself? It's very difficult to say since we didn't. But, but what we okay, what I can say, the blood test we did did show some raised uh, enzymes, you know, cardiac enzymes, and uh, so that's what we thought maybe it was a cardiac attack. Every Nigerian has their own theory about what happened to General Abacha. There were, of course, scurrilous rumors that um, he was either poisoned or that he had spent a night entertaining young ladies. Any of this true? Very concerned. When I entered where he was, there were no ladies at all. So I don't think, I mean, it might be true, but I did not see them. Because of the poisoning, as I said, no post-mortem has been done, so that cannot be to sure whether it was poison or it was just a heart attack. One story in Intimate Strangers by Brighton Brighton Bach is about the origin of writing. Ancient Chinese law has it that writing evolved from magical signs, from runes and the symbols or depictions of the bones cast by diviners. On the day humans began to codify the signs and their meanings by repeating them at will, without the help of diviners, they began in effect to trace the openings to the unknown. Gods and demons wept because now there was no longer heaven and earth. Humans had interjected themselves between reality and dream. Now there was a go between straddling the known and the unknowable. Something autonomous had come into being. Another story is about twin ladies in their great old age. They have lost husbands and the memory of orgasms and names. They are sitting together in a room warmed by the evening sun. One turns to the other in utter uncertainty and inquires, tell me, am I alive? Thank you. Thank you very much, Emmanuel, for this poetic layering of text and voice and image. I did not mention at the beginning that there will not be a Q&A. <laughs> so you will have to take your impressions with you unless you stalk this man across the corridors of this place to tell you more. We resume in, in 22 minutes uh, at 2.30 with Elaine Moktefi and Sofia Azeb uh, for more Intimate Strangeness. The session is called Intimate Strangers, the Black Panthers in Algiers. See you in a bit.